0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height, And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... F20 Machine Politics. The Chicago Film Festival. Abandoned President Heads. And An Assassinated Shaw. meet pop-up juncture
1: Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil.
0: Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been
1: itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck.
0: That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price.
1: If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future.
0: If you're interested in making this program
1: a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com FS2
0: subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book and you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com
1: backslash FS2 subscription.
0: It's time once again for that most occasional of huts, the preamble hut, in which we deal with some business off the top before getting on to our regular four segments. And this time around, Ken, uh, you wanted to add something of an asterisk to last episodes directed energy beam segment in the trade craft hut, uh, because you feel there was not quite enough balance given to the psychosocial uh, explanation. And uh, here you go.
1: Yeah. Basically our, our prejudices in this podcast are worn on our sleeves. We are prejudiced in favor of fun, but we do try to leaven that prejudice with a, just a little bit of the, of the Himalayan pink sea salt of science and fact, and fun ruining. And uh, some people have uh, taken Julia Ioff's article in GQ that was the basis of our discussion of sinister FSB microwave assassins to task. Uh, Natalie Shore uh, has pointed out that the Journal of the American Medical Association paper uh, from the University of Pennsylvania researchers that sort of buttressed Ioffe's entire piece is not so solid as all that. Uh, one of the referees said that it was just plain out bad science, and even the journal uh, itself published a editorial that said, ah, read the paper, but uh, we point out that brain imaging did not actually show what the paper said, and also a lot of the people had prolonged symptoms that kind of began to fix themselves and we're not sure that that is the same thing as being shot by microwave guns and then other researchers after seeing that said that the JAMA study was uh, very very bad and should be tossed out because for example um, they didn't have a control group they didn't have any definition of the syndrome they were looking for it was like putting up a note in the bulletin board saying do you feel bad? come tell us about it and predictably, if you put that note up, you get people who come tell you about things, but that's not dispositive. Uh, Natalie Shore does not have a, uh, being a medical person, not a spy person, doesn't have a response to the, uh, seemingly sinister pattern of, uh, GRU phone usage in the area of these attacks, but Wherever there are American diplomats and spies, there will be Russian diplomats and spies because that's the way the world operates, so maybe it's just a coincidence. And again, do we have a random list of 100 American spies that did not get microwave attacked? And how many of those have got FSB guys in the next room? So it's not quite the, uh, smoking microwave gun that, uh, we enjoyed saying it was. Right.
0: Although listening to the piece, there was no, uh, caveat shortage.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we, we were good, but I feel like we depended on Julia Ioff because she's a great writer and, uh, goes for the zinger. And she depended on that JAMA study, which is like so many barely reviewed studies, uh, not replicable and a tissue of exaggerations perhaps who can say so just uh, be aware everybody
0: right um and if there is a psychosocial component there is other stuff in there that is either that is straight up disinformation so there is other stuff that needs to be dismissed there's the National Academy of Sciences report which we can't see because it is allegedly being uh, sat on and uh, I feel I also need to say that just uh, saying that something is psychosocial is also something that you have to Regard with a certain amount of skepticism because there's also a history of things that are dismissed as psychosocial, and then later right. evidence comes forward to prove it. So, it's, like we
1: like we mentioned earlier in the piece about Gulf War syndrome, which was originally dismissed as psychosocial by a lot of people, or at the very least as an exaggerated PTSD playing out, and it right. turned out, nope, it was about fighting a war in and around a toxic dump. So there we are.
0: Yeah, and and of course a, a complicating factor is uh, there often is you have to expect a Uh, combination of psychosocial effects, even in something that is real, because once you become hypervigilant, then, you know, the body uh, has has stress reactions. And uh, so it's entirely possible to have something where this symptom is psychosocial, but you were really also something happened. So in three years from now, Ken, maybe we'll know more about this story. Just because some
1: people lie when they saw the Loch Ness Monster or confabulate it, doesn't mean other people did not see the Loch Ness Monster. That's a good thing to keep in mind, Robin.
0: And on that note, uh, let us uh, head on down to the uh, rest of our segments. The Rattle
1: of Dice, the Thump of Miniatures, the Crunch of Doritos, and the Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, the uh, miniatures are all lined up, and look at that, they've all got tiny little ballots in their hands. Every single one of them registered to vote Democrat because the game's happening in Chicago. They're going to go in, they're going to cast their votes and um, uh, our alderman will once more coast to victory because uh beloved Pat backer, David. Soa asks us how to use a town or city with machine politics in an F20 game. And boy, if there's anything better than that, and I would say, and uh, David Soa asked about F twenty. That's what we're going to give him. But if you don't take these same insights and use them to bollocks up your Shadowrun <laughs> players, you are not paying attention.
0: <laughs> right. So first of all, the the quality of uh, machine politics is basically uh, one where there's a, a political boss who has a, a solid block of different constituencies that are all locked up, and they can all uh, deliver at. Uh, at voting time. So there is a, uh, not a monopoly on power, but a hard grip on it, uh, that if you want to come along and challenge that, that you've got a, a really uphill road to go. And that means that there's a a system of patronage operating under the layer of what is putatively uh, a a free and fair democracy in the way that you are able to deliver uh, a machine in machine politics is that you have brokers in all of these different constituencies who are able to reliably deliver votes on election day. And I guess in an F20 game, Ken, the dead literally can vote, right? They can, yeah, I mean I, I guess it
1: depends on, you know, the structure of your city, but uh, you could absolutely see a world in which just because you're, you know, now a a, a lich or a skeleton doesn't mean you don't get your vote if you are a, an aristocrat or a guild member or whoever it is that gets to vote in your uh fantod of a medieval renfair uh city organization. Right.
0: So the first thing I would want to do is make sure that there's a... So so the obvious thing to do with all the different constituencies is to make them the D&D races. But that's A, obvious. And B, it uh, risks mapping those imaginary creatures onto real-world ethnic groups in a way that can go sideways fast in a way that you you don't expect.
1: Right. It's like no one wants to sit around and say,
0: so should the Puerto Ricans be gnomes? That just... That's not a good look. No, let's let's not do that. And it's also sort of obvious. So the I guess the first question yeah. is what is it that uh divides uh different the po- what are the power blocks in this F20 city? And uh one way to do it would just be that that there are different nationalities which also include, you know, gnomes and humans and elves and so forth. Uh one that I thought was kind of fun to play with those, the idea of alignment politics. Mm. What if what if there's a uh, a, you know, the lawful neutrals all live together in one neighborhood. You know, there's there's social sorting in your F-20 world.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, who wants to live in the chaotic evil neighborhood if you can afford the uh, lawful neutral neighborhood? Well,
0: chaotic <laughs> evil people. Yeah, obviously, Because right. there, there's no man getting mm-hmm. in the way of their clubbing well, each other. And exactly. so that could be uh, one potential. Forget about it, Jake. It's chaotic evil town. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's really leaning into the, that that DD D&D trope, because normally the problem with alignment is that it's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but not to put lipstick on a pig here, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, and so trying to make it make sense, just always just makes it worse. But here, I think it might be fun in a sort of a, a, a satirical way to to lean into that and have, you know, people are not only aware of alignments and have alignment languages. This is the first time alignment languages can possibly be interesting and fun. And <laughs> that, so that your your alignment is your culture and you uh, all group together. And so what are, uh, you know, if, if you need money for this annotation system, you know, how do you, which block of alignments do you get together to, you know, it's like, Oh, well, I,
1: I like the, I like the idea of the lawful evil parade. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, they got all the permits, but it's just, we can't do anything about it.
0: Well, it's, it's very orderly, uh-huh, you know, there's yeah. a lot of marching and being innocent mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and so, you know, you, you need a block of, of votes to get together to uh, make sure you have your, your infrastructure, whatever it is. And it's like, well, we can lock up all of the lawful alignments in favor of uh, sanitation, you know, lawful evil—they like things neat. Mm-hmm. But what is the cost of conceding something to the to the lawful evil people? Do we want to sort of, you know, we don't want the evils all forming a coalition together, right? We want to break them up, right? So mm-hmm. that that offers—that
1: explains why the city sewers always have monster pits in them.
0: <laughs> exactly, it's
1: like the lawful evil contractors had to get a taste.
0: <laughs> it was a concession to, right? It's yep. like, oh well, yeah, you can have a sewer system. But uh, the sewers, X number of them have to come up into the uh, manners of the wealthy, Uh uh-huh. seems we, you know, we to get, can see, And also, there's Pusses in them.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's how they got the neutral evils, the, the, the swing block. You exactly. Know, you come in and say, well, uh, you can run with this as, as much or as little as you want. But if you wish to launder it through a seeming veneer of plausibility, you can have what actually used to separate cities into quarters back in the day, a religion. You can have them worship different gods. So instead of straight up saying uh, we're going after the lawful evil vote, you say we're going after the Nergal cultist vote, or we're going after the worshipers of Thor And so each of the gods may have their own alignment, who can say, but the notion of people socially sorting to live around the temples of their gods so that they don't accidentally stumble into a restaurant serving food that is not sacred to uh, St. Cuthbert or whoever, uh, that makes sense within an F-20 world, and uh, you can still have that fun and get most of what you want. Uh, without, uh, obviously, the uh, delicious irony of pretending that alignments are a thing. But that will at least give you a a sensible uh, sort and a natural uh, way to organize power in one of these quasi-medieval cities. Um, You do need something that can be accomplished with a mob besides not burning the city down. And admittedly, uh, urban politics back in the day Used to basically be about not burning the city down. So if you're just telling a fairly brief story, uh, you're not making that sitting your your main setting. You can very much walk into town and people are like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we're the, the council's meeting to decide who the new mayor is. And uh, both factions have got a mob that can burn the city down. We're all of us on tenor hooks. We would have left if we could, but we have to be here because it's the rules. And if we're not here, they'll seize our property and use it to pay off the mob. So, yeah, I mean, that form of machine politics goes, you know, way back. Uh, You know, Republican Rome, of course, was very much about that. The plebeians uh, didn't get to vote, but they could be maybe unleashed on uh, other people. And so there was big questions about that uh, in in ancient times and, and in medieval times. In a Fantasy city, you can absolutely assume that the franchise has been extended in a city that is run by its guilds. Um, a city that is run even to some extent by citizens, by voters. Uh, there, you know, Venice was theoretically a republic and who can say, uh, the Dutch also in medieval times, the Swiss in medieval times were, were democratic uh, city states. So you can set up a system in which perhaps, uh, most of the, of the commoners are not enfranchised so that you're not suddenly moving into a hilarious, uh, D&D Baltimore situation, although that would also be hilarious. Um, and you're keeping it, uh, somewhat medieval and real, but the franchise is wide, is, is widely enough based that machine politics do actually mean something, that there is a big enough city government that providing city patronage is a thing because most medieval patronage was just paying off nobles and saying you're the warden of the tin mines and you're in charge of the gate where the you know uh spice trade comes through so you can tax the spice trade but in terms of providing jobs and patronage in a classic uh machine politics system you need to have a a city with a slightly uh, broader democratic base than the average uh medieval princely city had right um and that means establishing things like what's the power of the of the government how do they distribute patronage? What do they need to continue operating? Where are the stress points? Are they between various religions? Is there a large unassimilable population of men, uh, in the city humans that is ruining everything because the elves and the gnomes between them have got this beautiful democratic system set up and, and the humans come in and insist on voting in the short term and ruining everything. Um, what, what's your city's politics look like? You have to sort of draw that out and then. By making those choices, players can make choices that are meaningful within the course of the game on a, uh, on an iterative basis. You know, you, you, you've offended the ward boss by, you know, you know, s- stealing stuff from his house or delving in his uh, chosen dungeon. That should carry consequences if those choices are to be meaningful, right? Right.
0: And you can have, uh, without having democracy, uh, the, the fantasy city that I'm working on updating was Previous to new people coming in and ruining everything, had essentially that structure that all of the power brokers uh, were on a council who reported to the uh, conquering imperial authorities. And so uh, the uh, conquering imperials had a certain amount of power and force behind them, but then they had to make sure that they had enough of the local prominent figures on board in order to maintain the idea of some extent of consent of the governed. So there's, it's not like they're delivering votes, but they're delivering the support of the people who respect them and look up to them as to to, to what to do. And so you also probably want to sprinkle in some economic power brokers in there as well, so that it's not just 13 priests, because that's, you know, a little too uniform, even though their individual gods might mm-hmm. be quite different. But among the priests, you might say, well, here's the representative of the old line families uh, who own all of the land outside the city. And uh, here's the the head of the shipwrights guild uh, and have, uh, you know, a, a different assortment of people who uh, control uh, and you can even sort of set down, you know, while Grayfeather, uh, he has the support of about 500 people in the shipwrights guild, uh, plus all of their families. And also he uh, has the the, the Timberman's Guild kind of behind him as well. And so the Timberman's Guild doesn't have a representative on council, but Greyfeather is in in charge of that. And, uh, you know, the priest of Nurgle has about 300 hardcore worshippers and then maybe, say, another 300 who he may be able to kind of sway. And so you can kind of lay out even kind of in a diagram or pie chart form which depending on how obsessive your players are, that you could either have in the back of your mind or show them to show who they have to go to in order to get enough people behind whatever it is that they want to do in order to have a patron. Or you could just be playing with the idea that there are for every power broker, there's a power broker in the wings who wants that power broker out of the way. And that can be your sort of intrigue in that, well, we need to get the the secret dirt on the priest of Nurgle so that the uh, assistant priest of Nergal can then sweep in there and take his place as, as a power broker. And so that can begin to, uh, if you want sort of more intrigue and, and backstabbing, uh, you can, uh, have that sort of be the thing that motivates scenarios. Uh, if your group more wants to, uh, do the kind of, uh, power brokering and, and selecting a policy and trying to assemble a big enough constituency for it. Uh, you can uh, gain that out as well. And so that's a matter of, well, again, we want the sanitation system, so we're going to the head of the Lawful Evil League or the shipwrights, and uh, we ask them what favor they want. And guess what? The favor they want is an adventure hook. So I think uh, once we get to the adventure hooks, that brings us to the end of our hut, and therefore we can move along to our next hut. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing
1: is a robot hand or a deck of many futures.
0: Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm.
1: All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The
0: Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure, as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld, designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the Underworld secrets for 13th Age, including... The lands of the Underworld, the Underland, the kingdoms
1: of the Hollow Realms, and what lies within the deeps.
0: The mighty dwarven city of Forge.
1: The domains of the Silverfolk elves. The Threats of Malice, the Drowfort. And the Four Kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun.
0: Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For a limited time, get 10% off in print or
1: PDF at the Pelgrane Store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at pelgranepress.com.
0: It's time once again to enter that most glorious of huts, the hut where uh, there's plush seating. Uh, we can see the uh, beam of the digital projector overhead. But in this case, the oh, we're not in a theater at all. We're in Ken's living room. And uh, Virgil is there with some popcorn uh, because uh, this year at the Chicago Film Festival, as it was for me at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, Ken did his festival going. At home. And I think you had a slightly smoother technical experience than I did.
1: Yeah. Say what you want about the Chicago Film Festival, and Lord knows I will. This was almost completely seamless. There was an app that you could uh, download on your Roku and watch the films through that. They sent you a digital code uh, at the beginning of of the film window, which was usually the beginning of the festival, but a couple of times was not. And then you could dial it up using the digital code the stream streamed just fine i had uh nary a bump in the road the only exception was when they sent you the code they did not always say this film has a four-hour viewing window and by not always i mean never so night of the kings i missed my first viewing of because i thought that it was a bigger window or a different window and so i had to uh cancel my wednesday night game and watch it then but you know if it had been the real film festival, I'd been canceling games all over the place. So, there we are. It is it is what it is. Uh, yeah, Sheila and I went through the, the the movies together this time. Many of the movies that she wanted to see were only in drive-in, which was a weird choice in many ways. But there we are, so we didn't get to see those. But I did get to watch, like, the some of the short blocks, which normally I skip at the film fest. And I got to watch them with her, and that was pretty great. So, including a Guy Madden short uh, stump the Guesser, in which uh, Lysenkoism is on the side of the good guys. And that is a a Guy Madden movie par excellence. If it, anyone's uh, going to
0: put Lysenko in film, it'll be Madden. It will be Madden. Um, so uh, you, you did have a, a film that you would put in the pinnacle class, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's kind of from out of left field. It's called Careless Crime. It's from Iran, and it's uh, directed by Sharam Mokri.
1: Yeah, um, Mokri is apparently, um, and I I knew nothing about him going in. I just liked the description of the movie, and so I watched it. And then after I watched it, there was a very long, like a 18-hour-long what-did-I-just-watch period for me where I went and looked up as much as I possibly could about Sharam Mokri. He's a new generation of Iranian filmmakers, so he comes out of the very uh French film influenced Iranian standard genre, but he apparently grew up and watched a lot of pirated American movies because he loves making genre elements uh in these sort of art house French style films, so he's still got the the long languorous shots he's still got the sort of uh drip uh by drip revelation of character, but he's also telling stories about vampires in a film that I have not seen, but very much want to. Um, And in this case, a story about, is it a crime film? And uh, at some point, and I'm not sure this is quite spoilering, but something happens where it is not just a conventional film. There is a, a lot of overlapping arcs, so you see the same event from different characters' perspectives, and then you realize that you're not, you, you weren't seeing everything, and, and you have a, a, a big uh, revelatory light comes in, and once that happens, the film really picks up the pace. It stops being paced quite uh, so Frenchly and begins to move in a very tightening, almost a, a noir-style pacing as you cut from emotional revelation to emotional revelation to emotional revelation. It's, uh, it's an amazing, just a technical piece of work, and it's also about sort of cinematic urban hauntology in a way that I forbear to spoil. But the thing at the center of it is a movie theater fire in Abaddon in 1978 at the cinema Rex that killed like 400 people. It was a huge giant disaster of a fire. It, the fire was set by anti-Western anti activists, sort of pro uh, khomeini type guys. And the general thumb handedness of the government, you know, first of all, allowing something as disastrous as this to happen with no regulations and, and bribes and whatnot. And then also botching the investigation, uh, actually turned people against the government, despite the fact that the guys against the government were the ones who started the fire. So it was a, a great and powerful, tragic moment at the beginning of, uh, the, the Iranian revolution. And obviously, if you're an Iranian filmmaker, uh, you think about that kind of thing all the time. And, Sharamukri has thought about it and very much implies in the film that this is the thing we can't get away from without addressing. And it is an amazing movie on a lot of levels. The score uh by Eshan Seti, it, it's begins. It sounds sort of discordant and weird. And then you notice that some of the score fits with the other parts of the score. So it's sort of like, you know, you're hearing bits of the score depending on where you are in the film it It's just an amazing piece of work I saw it lying on my couch at three in the morning and I so need to see it in a theater for that full on theatrical experience that obviously the film is literally about in many ways it's uh it was such a thing and it was a it was a it was a movie that i at first thought well this is this is this is a strong recommend and if I'd seen it in a theater it'd be a pinnacle and then as I began to sort of examine what it was I'd seen it was like it's not Sharam Mokri's fault that I didn't see this in a theater. He does not, he does not need to get the ding, uh, because I had to watch it on my couch. Uh, and I will absolutely, you know, if there's a Sharam Mokri, you know, retrospective coming to, uh, doc films in, uh, in, at the university, I am there. I'm there with bells on. It's an amazing director. Like you say, out of left field, I'd never heard of the guy before, but he seems to be uh, interested in influencing the The standard Iranian film tradition with genre takes and with very interesting choices uh with editing and storytelling he's uh, a lot of his uh movies early his early movies are apparently lots of extended uh tracking shots and uh you know continuous shot movies and and other uh fun things like that with narrative and I am here for it i'm I am ride or die with Sharam Mokri at this point.
0: Speaking of the fusion of uh, art cinema and genre, uh, we come to uh, one of the titles that uh, I saw and talked about in our TIFF segment, and that's Night of the Kings from uh, the Ivory Coast, uh, directed by Philippe Lacoste. Yep, and we uh, we both saw it and we talked about it in the previous
1: uh, TIFF uh, segment. But yes, it it was uh, you know the second best movie I saw. It manages to combine the prison gangster film and sort of an Arabian Nights sensibility. It's both a fable and a metaphor in a lot of ways. It's kind of a movie about narratology. Uh, the ending certainly has something to say about narrative. And it's also just a, a straight up. How do you live through the night? Uh, you know, A universal question for all of us. One perhaps more relevant if you're in a deadly Cote d'Ivoire prison. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a great drama on every level and visually very inventive African film when it's done well is, is, is got a, a sort of a, a rich quality to it just in terms of, uh, coming out of a genuine lived experience. I mean, these, uh, these guys by and large, I suspect they, they are not, uh, etiolated products of film schools, or if they are they're they got into film school after getting out of some, some stuff. So there's some genuine, uh, sort of. Not just social concern, but human concern, uh, showing up on the screen. If you've got a good African director, and I think that you know West Africa with uh, Nollywood uh, is um, uh, is probably spinning off a lot of very very good directors that we're that we're sleeping on too much. Maybe.
0: Uh, speaking of sleeping on, uh, the next uh, title is "Sleep: A Ghost Story" from Germany, and it's directed by Michael Venus. And this is you know uh,
1: it, it's too good to be a killer bee. It's just a straight up great ghost story. It's like, you know, the uninvited or something. Uh, it's a woman who has been uh, plagued by nightmares. In her nightmares, she's seen a mysterious hotel and has drawn him into her notebooks in a very creepy fashion. And then she collapses in a coma when she's in the hotel from her dreams and her daughter investigates and goes and stays in the hotel, uh, which great setup just by itself. It's a mostly empty hotel because it's out of season there's activities going on there's weird npcs showing up uh, or supporting characters as i guess they call them in films
0: <laughs> as they call them in other lesser mediums in
1: other lesser art forms and it's very very good it's very well done and it's an ending that doesn't cheat while still providing i guess what the what the modern generation wants from their ghost movies so i uh, i i think it's terrific and then it's also just you know It's about uh, more ghosts than just the ghost in the movie. And I guess I'll leave it at that.
0: Uh, Next is the other film that uh, we've both seen, and that's Fireball Visitors from Darker Worlds. Uh, It will uh, be dropping on Apple Plus very soon. uh, And it is by Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. And it's another of Herzog's uh, weirdly magical nature and science documentaries.
1: Yeah. The, the thing that uh, very much, I mean, obviously we all, we, we Stan Werner, this is a, a Werner Stan podcast, but uh, the thing that struck me is the degree to which Herzog is, I mean, he's aware of the science. He's not an idiot, but for him, the immediate concern of it is the art that can be made from science or from these effects. And this is the, 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 the Australian Aboriginal, art that was created around this meteor crater through the, you know, uh, the shell that is put around the Kaaba in Mecca, through the narrative of uh, this meteor that fell in Austria in the 15th century, and the notion that, oh, the guy who's currently finding micrometeoroids on a roof in Norway is also Norway's greatest jazz musician, and this sort of overlap. And then as he moves, you know, sort of into the center of the film, he begins to talk about or not talk about because he's Werner show about the, the overlaps between the art impulse and the religious impulse and the scientific impulse. And the question is we're all pursuing this ecstasy, this joy, this thing that brings us out of ourselves. And what better way to demonstrate that than by sort of having these flashes of uh, meaning throughout his film, which of course, uh replicates the topic which is the flashes of meteors and great uh supporting characters lots of good hooky thoughts and lovely vernerian uh herzogian monologue about the uh what, what did he call it the the godforsaken result of chicks club yeah and when there is nothing to do but stand under the looming skies of despair that kind of thing <laughs> it's the, the Chicks Club, uh, community chamber of commerce, not a big Herzog fan, I suspect.
0: Uh, yes, but he, he, he proves his point visually. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> he, no, you don't him. He, he earns every Herzog moment in that film, certainly. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a hangout film in a way because he obviously loves, uh, Clive Oppenheimer, the volcanologist that he made, uh, the rim of the inferno with. And he's like, what else can we do? And off they go to talk science with science guys, but. There's, there's a moment where a science guy is explaining something and Werner like, is visually and obviously bored with the explanation and just says, well, we're going to cut away here. <laughs> we're just going to, trust me, this could have gone on forever. Yeah. <laughs> and he
0: does that to a historian as well. So it, it's good fun. He loves the scientists, but not uh, so much that he lets them drone on. Right. Next, we're still in the documentary space and we're talking about another classic filmmaker. It's Kubrick by Kubrick. And this is directed by Gregory Monroe.
1: And this is centered around one of the few recordings of Kubrick talking about his own film. Uh, there's a French film critic named Michael Ciment, I guess, that uh interviewed Kubrick. He wrote a big old retrospective in, I think, 1968 about how great Kubrick was. Kubrick read it and... <laughs> like many a creative artist thought that that was really incisive. And that guy had a point. And so he
0: was forced to agree.
1: Yep. He couldn't, he couldn't help it. And so he granted him a series of interviews over the course of his career, all of which are on tape and which being played become the spine of this film, which is a sort of second view on most Kubrick films. Obviously um, it doesn't touch the, the, the early stuff. There's no, um, the killing, and it, uh, it it sort of, you know, can't go into uh, Eyes Wide Shut very easily because Kubrick died before getting to be interviewed about it. So they talk they they have he has some footage from like Tom Cruise and uh, other people involved in the film. But mostly it's just Kubrick going on in what to my mind is the funnest part of this film is Kubrick sounding like a guy in the Bronx who is maybe running a, I don't know, a carpet cleaning business or something. (laughs) He doesn't sound like your Stanley Kubrick in your head sounds. He's just like yeah, well, you know, we just got really lucky and we found this place in London. Uh, yeah, we, we sort had to of, clean
0: that carpet 297 times before it was right. And the, the the city of Hue, uh,
1: they've got this sort of industrial architecture on the outskirts. And imagine uh, we were so lucky to find a place in London. And we, we, if we'd shot in Hue, we couldn't have gotten the sort of hell on earth that I was going for. And it's <laughs> just terrific sort of Kubrick unspooling a little bit. And... At the beginning, they're like, you all heard that he's an obsessive perfectionist and we're going to sort of. Crack that myth a little bit. And then they show Shelley Duvall saying, you know, after you've done the hundredth take of a thing, you sort of go into a space where you're just living the character. And I think that that's what Kubrick wanted. (laughs) So we don't quite question the myth so much as add shading and sides to it. But if you're not
0: proven, there were a hundred takes. There were a hundred takes. Not not up for grabs. If If you have a interest in
1: Kubrick and not a humongous amount of knowledge of Kubrick, I think it's a, it's a really good sort of Kubrick, like I say, a Kubrick 102. It's, you know, something about Kubrick. This will let you know more about Kubrick and you'll get the, just the, the really fun sense of, of hearing Kubrick talk. And Kubrick, like many, many creative artists is saying some nonsense and saying th- some things that are palpably not true and some things that. You think, well, this is obvious. Everyone should have known this. How is this a revelation? But apparently it was big news to Michael Cement. So there we are. It's
0: it's a good movie. And still in the realm of top tier directors, we have Agnieszka Holland's Charlatan. And this is a movie about a herbalist who became a, not quite a
1: faith healer, but let's let he was not a doctor, as he said over and over. Uh, Jan Mikolaszek, who started his career in the uh, 1920s. And was arrested and tried in 1958 by the communist government of Czechoslovakia after the premier of Czechoslovakia, uh, dies in 1957, uh, someone who he had healed. And then with his patron gone, he's vulnerable. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a biopic, fairly standard, uh, structure in that. But Agnieszka Holland is not, despite the title, giving you a one-sided Hollywood view of Mikolaszek. She's sort of looking at the play of of uh, events and psychologies that go into the character. There's always something new to learn. It's not a a straightforward movie uh, narratively. The main actor, Ivan Troyan, who plays Mikolashek, very much plays him with a lot of different uh, affects and approaches. Uh, you you're, you're sympathetic to him one moment, you hate him the next moment. It, it's a it's a very humanist uh, character at the center, and then the I think the thing that makes it fun. Or, or in, more interesting than a, than a straight up biopic is that the cinematographer, Martin Sterba, is filming everything in the most absolutely obvious way possible. So you have this confused, self-contradictory character this confused, self-contradictory narrative. And all of the filmic language is saying, nope, there's only one truth. Uh, the past is sunny and bright. Communism is gray and horrible. That's what the world looks like. Move on. And that interplay between the 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 lensing and the writing and the acting is, I think, where the where the recommendedness uh, pops out of the uh, out of this film. As as Robin knows, I'm not a big fan of the biopic. I feel like it should be banned by the UN. But uh, if you're going to make one, Agnieszka Holland has has made a good one.
0: And uh, finally, uh, we'll close on one that you liked uh, a tick less, but we should talk about it because it's about something we've talked about on the show. Uh, and that's The Prophet and the Space Aliens. It's a documentary by Yoav Shamir from Israel. And it's about the Raelians.
1: Yeah, the good old Raelians. Um, former pop singer and race car aficionado Claude Vorilon sees UFOs in 1974, is carried away to an alien planet, told he's the son of Yahweh, gins up a big old sex cult that has a clone baby. You think, well, this movie's going to be rock and roll. And it's not uh shamir is basically trying to be super fair he downplays a lot of the wacky stuff about the cult he doesn't even call it a cult he has a religious scholar who's like well i don't like to use the word cult about a bunch of people who worship a ufo race car driver and have special flower brides that doesn't that's you know i'm sure real religions do strange stuff too seems judgmental it'd be it'd be too mean so uh shamir is is uh soft peddling him Lots of shots of Rael, uh, the former Vorlon, uh, interviews, dialogue. Uh, I think the high point of the movie is when, uh, Rael is, is leaving a, uh, I think it's a bocce tournament or something. And he's mad because they didn't let him play all the bocce he wanted. And he's like, I'm going to leave then. I'm the, I'm the son of Yahweh. You can't treat me this way. And he storms out and he runs smack into a couple of Mormons. And so there's a beautiful moment where they're each trying to give each other their literature and and that's that was a fun uh, a fun bit and it's those sort of like found moments that I think are are what makes this movie worthwhile if you want sort of the the skinny on the aliens, read a book but to sort of see the sort of seedy low rent cult in its own backyard and then the wildness that there's little towns in upper Volta or Burkina Faso as it is now, um, where Raelianism is the religion because they don't want to be hardcore Muslims like all their neighbors are. And that's an odd dynamic by itself. And, uh,
0: that should be its own documentary. That's, yeah. that's
1: the one I want to see. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a lot going on this documentary. There's a lot of stuff in it and it's, it's very gameable on that level of what is the quotidian reality of a cult. But if you're going there for the rock and roll zinger craziness, uh, there's not a lot of
0: that. You'll have to wait for the HBO documentary miniseries. Exactly. Right. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, head on out of your living room slash cinema and uh, see what exciting new Hot or segment waits on the other side of this extremely important commercial message. The Best of Ask is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six-guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvigeln
1: on DriveThru. Help us pay off the lawful neutral ward healer by joining such beloved Patreon backers
0: as... John Rogers! Ross Ireland! Todd W. Olson! Andrea Coletta! And Derek McMullen.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Scott Stefanski asks, which ways would you find most interesting to gamify this? A great question, Scott. We love it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's just leave it at that. And I, I yeah. don't know. I
0: got to dispute the premise. Uh.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, we're just basically we're being assumed. Oh, wait, wait. There's a link. Oh, there's a link oh, we yeah. have to
0: click on. Yeah. All right. All right.
1: Okay. And we click on the link and it takes us to AbandonAmerica.us and a page about the president heads of Croker, Virginia. Robin, you want to set us up with these president heads?
0: So uh, basically the story is is that uh, someone uh, figured that uh, there would be a a great tourist attraction if you built these big sort of concrete-looking heads of each president and then laid them all out in President's Park in which people could wend from oversized president head to oversized president head. So it's sort of uh, inspired by Mount Rushmore, but everything's sort of more on your level. And uh, you could learn about the presidents that way with your family. Well, it turned out that this was not quite as exciting a tourist attraction as the uh, founder figured. And so uh, they all got moved off uh, to the uh, lot of uh, someone who owns the construction company that was used in uh, building it. And now they are moldering the uh, backs of some of the president heads have come off revealing the uh, metal armatures inside. And so there's this abandoned field of president heads. The uh, gentleman who owns the property is none too happy to have people showing up to take pictures of the deteriorating president heads because uh, I think he's uh, it's private property and he's concerned about people messing with his construction equipment. And so uh, the question is, Ken, what would you and I do uh, with this compelling image, this this strong visual, yes, and uh, I think there's there's sort of the obvious thing that you would expect us to do with that, and we might need to get there because I don't my I think more interesting idea isn't seven and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you would think that the town this is located in would be known as heavy-handed metaphor, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, but no, it's in the nearly as good Croker, Virginia. And Croker uh, is named after a, a riverine fish that was once found in abundance nearby. Uh, when we get to try and esoteric this up, uh, there's there's other stuff nearby we could uh, hook in. But it seems to me the obvious thing to do uh, with a uh, collection of deteriorating president heads is to make a crime drama around it. And somewhere in early in Act One, we reveal that the protagonist's uh, have some sort of access to or interest in the field of the president heads. And then the end is the dusk shootout between them and their antagonists in the, the, the very midst of this uh, exciting uh, heavy-handed metaphor, which offers all sorts of access uh, to, you know, you could have bullets pinging off the presidents. Uh, they provide excellent cover. Uh, the ones that at the backs of the heads of them are off. Uh, might allow a character to uh, hide inside uh, the back of President Lincoln's head. And it just seems uh, so rich as that sort of metaphor that we would have to, I think, design a a crime drama uh, around that image.
1: I mean, I think that uh, where I was, I mean, if you're doing a crime drama, which is not where I was going, but what the hell, um, I think that you need to bring the president's heads into it. And I suspect that the best thing is that you've got a guy who's got a bag of something money drugs whatever and he stashes it and is killed somewhere and his dying words are it's in john tyler and then he dies right and then they're like what does that mean
0: and there's a monologue where the where the dumb henchman says he was disappointed not to be able to put the benjamins in benjamin franklin mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't know why president benjamin franklin isn't represented among the heads there He could have a whole whole shtick there.
1: Yeah. And then, and so you're tracking down what's John Tyler and you maybe find a couple of coincidentally named characters that aren't John, that aren't the John Tyler. And they realize, Oh, he hit it in the uh, hollow head of president John Tyler, the hollow 20 foot tall head of president John Tyler in this field in Croker, Virginia. And that that's where, Uh, everyone comes together looking for the bag, the MacGuffin, and it doesn't have to just be boring stuff like drugs or money. It can be, you know, uh, the black bird, or it can be the, you know, um, a magic sword, whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever your MacGuffin is. You can have it in that, in that field of president heads. And then since the presidents aren't in order, you have to run around and figure out which president. First of all, you don't know what John Tyler looks like. I promise you. Um, and so you have your, you know, your Wikipedia page open and you're looking around, which means that people can see your phone glow and shoot at you. So I, I think that that, you know, that, that zings up your, your, um, uh, your final shootout. And yes, obviously someone is hiding in the back of Abraham Lincoln's head to shoot you because obvious metaphor as as you say i think that where i was going was not a uh, setting for an amazingly cool crime drama but a uh, mystical acupuncture point for america there is another bunch of president heads in an old president's park in lead south dakota which also closed uh, possibly because people who have gotten mount rushmore nearby don't need to see more president heads
0: and also i think that the american veneration of the presidency has taken a few hits over the last yeah. generation, I remember President Love being a much bigger deal when I was a, a kid in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, back then the president was Nixon, Robin. So obviously,
1: you you, you can't you can't love a, an institution where you don't have a lovable, cuddly, hug-a-bear like Richard Nixon representing it. <laughs> and then the the sculptor addicts has a his sculptarium or whatever you call it is in Houston, and he's got. His president heads there as well. And that, by the way, is uh, where his Obama head is. Uh, Obama is not in either of the other two because they were built prior to Obama. But he was he was casting more heads because he figured who isn't going to want to see more president heads. So he's getting ahead of the demand. He's made an Obama and it's in uh, Houston at his sculptarium, but it's not at the other two locations. So I hope
0: his Obama head isn't wearing a tan suit. That would be scandalous. Um, I think his Obama head is uh, wearing a disappointed
1: in you expression because it is <laughs> it is life true life. life. Uh, I don't know if there's a Trump head anywhere. Uh, that may have been, he may have run out of concrete. Like, I don't have that kind of you know, time.
0: Well, wh- what do you do with the armature to get the hair right? That's... Right,
1: it's, it's it's a big task. It's a big ask. Yeah, and addicts, perhaps noticing that no one has bought his Obama, <laughs> felt little or no desire to build a Trump head uh, on spec, which I get because he he says that the heads cost like ten grand a piece or something for him to build. So it's not a cheap hobby building giant presidents' heads. But I look at a notion where we have not just one but three geographically disparate fields of president heads. And I say, obviously, there is some sort of ritual going on, that we are dealing with some sort of oracular uh, situation where if you show up at night uh, in front of Warren Harding, he will give you uh, a prophecy or um, uh, you sacrifice a, a, a raccoon to Andrew Jackson and one of your enemies will uh, die or move out of state suddenly. Um, Whatever it is, then you can do president magic at those spots, and maybe all the presidents have got their their mana there, and you can summon up a tulpa, or you can uh, have discourse with uh, the thing that they represent, the thing that they contributed for better or ill
0: to the American uh, polity. Abraham Lincoln gives you harmony magic, Ulysses Grant gives you war magic. Mm -hmm, Exactly, and that maybe you've got a system by which.
1: Which, in your unknown armies game or similar modern day occult game, that is the, uh, those are the, the gods of, of the domain. And you have to sort of figure out every time there's a new president, what is this president going to be good for? And, uh, are they taking spells away from other presidents? Um, obviously the presidents that are on the money are more powerful because people see them all the time and the topa power builds up. But, even John Tyler's got a little something. He's the grudge-holding fecund president. And so if you want to you know, deal with a grudge or have a bunch of kids, John Tyler's your guy. So there's, I, I think the notion that these presidents are themselves magical foci for President Tulpas or President demigods, presidential Loa, perhaps, uh, is, is fun as well.
0: Well, and I think that uh, is possibly actually what's really going on because I have to say that I have a case of Mandela effect around uh, the idea of an abandoned field full of president heads, because I thought for sure when I clicked on that link, that it would lead me to an image. I'm certain that I saw on social media of a field full of president heads, except in my recollection, a they're all in color. They've all been painted. Mm -hmm. B there's duplicates of different presidents. So it's like a president warehouse and not just Cleveland and not just Cleveland. (laughs) And also See, many of them looked weirdly like Matthew Modine. And I even remember (laughs) trying to half form a joke about it being the field of Matthew Modine's. But this did not turn up this time. In fairness, Matthew Modine is kind of a
1: Andrew Jackson, Woodrow Wilson average in in headway only he is not a genocidal murderer or a vicious anti-democratic tyrant he is he is a, a beloved actor
0: but yes he he would be a good casting for a number of different uh less iconic presidents yeah so there's certainly that magical thing going on if you are doing an unknown armies or this is normal now thing with the president heads you should also know that Colonial Williamsburg is 10 miles away, so, and that's jam-packed with ghosts. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, just 55 miles away is Hampton Roads, which is a uh, coastal community that uh, has had a number of different UFO waves, so you can incorporate those things. In as sure. well as
1: being where the Monitor and the Merrimack fought their inconclusive but vastly meaningful uh, naval battle. Which is probably why the UFOs go there. Right. It's, it's time signatures yeah. uh, from people being drawn up or... Possibly, Ead's also built a UFO for Abraham Lincoln,
0: and it's still on station. Uh, well, just when we've got to an even more interesting uh, possibility that a patron backer will have to ask us to expand, I think it's time to uh, to rush headlong toward <laughs> <Lord> a. <laughs> oh, let's just stop there. Yeah. <laughs> Suit up, agents of Delta Green.
1: Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond
0: the beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John
1: Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep, into the fissures of America in the new millennium.
0: From the loathsome servitors of the one percent to the
1: hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt from the abusive warrens of the internet to the lonely chambers of every human heart from the toxic legacy of the Cold War to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American
0: life has entered a
1: labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out.
0: The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that his superiors use to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and even mutilated. And this time around, Time Incorporated, Ken, wants to know uh, what happens if the 1949 attempted assassination on the Shah of Iran succeeds. Uh, and you, the listener, uh, if you even remember the Shah of Iran, if you're as old as Ken and I and have this formative news experience of uh, the Shah's final days and how it led to the Iranian revolution, you may be thinking, oh, well, this 1949, this has to be the uh, some other Shah, the Shah's dad. But no, uh, this is the uh, then suave and handsome and pliable Shah that uh, the Western powers figured would be uh, awesome to uh, run that oil-filled country in order to uh, access the oil. But can not everybody uh, liked that, did they?
1: Uh, no. Uh, lots of people didn't like the Shah. And it was not just the uh, communists who the Shah, realizing who... Uh, <laughs> I mean, first, they were indeed an existential threat to his reign also... Uh, as long as you're taking a British and American paycheck, why not oppress the communists? But also, got to know your demographic. Uh, because the Shah was genuinely interested in westernizing his country. He, for example, ended mandatory hijab laws. He uh, did land reform to break up, coincidentally, the previous dynasty of Shah's power. He did a lot of westernizing moves in uh, Iran. And the clerical ulama, the Shiite clergy, by and large didn't like that attitude because it, uh, meant people were not paying attention to church or to mosque rather and, uh, were engaging in ankle showing and other bad activities. And so he was, uh, inspiring generalized disaffection even as early as 1949. Although the assassination attempt on the Shah, which I guess we should get to to sort of like, set the groundwork. The Shah is 30 years old. He's been Shah since 1941, when his father Reza Shah was forcibly made to abdicate by a British invasion during World War I. The British wanted to secure the oil for the war, and they also wanted to secure a lend-lease route into uh, the Soviet Union so that they could supply the Soviets. And so, the British and,
0: and the lend lease route for our listeners
1: is, is a route through which the products of American industry can be uh, sent on very easy or no credit terms whatsoever to uh, an emb- an embattled ally uh, before America enters the war. So uh, the, the lend lease program mostly provided aid to Britain and uh, the Soviet Union uh, until we got into the war at the end of 41. And so the British, Uh, Invaded Iran, which they'd sort of wanted to do for a long old time, and used World War II as kind of an excuse to do it. Completely unprovoked, uh, just landed in Iran, marched to Tehran, and overthrew Reza Shah, uh, the the, the current Shah. And again, Reza Shah might have been a little kissy face with the Nazis, who's to say? But uh, he was rapidly uh, bundled off to Mauritius, an island in the Indian Ocean, and his son, um, uh, Muhammad Reza, uh, became the second Shah of Iran in the Pahlavi dynasty. As a matter of fact, when Reza Shah ran uh, the country, no one really had last names, but he realized he had to have a last name so he could name his dynasty something. And so he just picked the name of the language, Pahlavi being the specific form of the Iranian language, and he's uh, the the, uh, medieval Iranian language. And he says, well, that's my name. I'm uh, medieval Iran. So, and all my kids are. So anyway, um, the young Shah who was prepared for Shadom with Western education and parental, uh, cruelty, uh, becomes Shah. And then in 1949 is uh shot in the face by a, a member of, by a member of the Fedayeen Islam, which was a, uh, group basically of assassins. Fedayeen just means, uh, soldiers of or followers of, and, uh, They went for enemies of Islam, like, for example, a westernizing Shah. And the guy uh, goes up, shoots uh, the Shah in the face, Uh, Nasser Farakai, Fakhrarai, rather, fires five shots at the Shah, misses him uh, with four of them. Uh, The fifth uh, hits him in the face, but does not kill him. And, uh, of course, uh, Farrakh Rai is gunned down by the Shah's security. I,
0: I think, actually, he was uh, severely beaten and hospitalized. Yeah. Or, or so the contemporary account I read said.
1: Yeah, I have I've only seen the being gunned down. So if there is a some sort of uh, chicanery around the assassination, it wouldn't be the first or the last chicanery in that era. Because, as I was going to say, uh, this is but one of the many assassinations that are being carried out Either by the Fedayeen, who are definitely behind some of them, or by elements of the security service who are attempting to kill their enemies and using either Fedayeen as cutouts or using guys that they can then claim later were Fedayeen, or by other members of the Shah's family who also have, you know, issues. So, for example, uh, the Fedayeen killed a uh, secular uh, historian named Ahmad Kasravi in 1946, and they kill him and his uh, assistant. A hard-charging, muckraking journalist named Mohammed Masood is killed uh, in 1948, and maybe that was the Shah's sister doing that. Uh, Reza Pahlavi was shot, as I say, um, and although the, the killer was a Fari'in guy, the uh, Shah later blamed the Tuda, the, the Communist Party of Iran, uh, for instigating that assassination attempt, and then uh, there were many, many other uh, figures that were just being gunned down over and over and over uh, all the way down to 1953, when there was an attempted assassination of Mohammed Masadek, who was the prime minister of Iran at that time. And that is where the alternating, uh, I guess, will uh, begin at some point.
0: Right. So, so far, we just have history. Yeah. But now, can we're going to get to the uh, alternate history. And are you going to reveal now whether... Uh, this would be a history that you would uh, cause or prevent, or are you going to leave it to the end?
1: I'm, I'll, I think we'll leave it to the end. I think we'll talk okay. a little bit more about that. Uh, the death of the Shah, obviously, creates a succession crisis. And the guys in line, uh, the next one is Prince Ali Reza, who is very little is known about because in 1954 in our history, he died in a plane crash and never really accomplished very much. The next youngest brother is a fellow named uh, Prince Golam Reza, and he's the one that the British wanted to put on the throne instead of Mohammad Reza Shah. And so I think we can maybe say that if the British try their hand uh, to to you know um, put someone on the throne, first they tried to get the old Qajar monarchs back on the throne, that didn't work, and then they settled for Mohammad Reza Shah. With Muhammad Reza gunned down, both of the other heirs are in. Mauritius with their father, Reza Shah. Uh, so the British get their choice of which heir to release to go back to Iran, and they would put their thumb on the scale again. And I think that the odds are pretty good that you wind up with Golam Reza as the Shah and an even more pliable puppet of the British than uh, Reza Shah was, or than uh, Mohammad Reza Shah was. And the presence of of increased British puppetry in Iran means that when Mohammed Mossadegh gets elected prime minister and says, you know what? I think we'll nationalize the oil company and take all that money away from the British. And the British go to the Americans and say, help us overthrow Mossadegh. I think that given the sort of general chaos that Iran would be falling into, uh, because the, if there's one thing the Iranians hate, 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 now and then was the hated British, I think there's a much better chance that Eisenhower uh, tells the British to go pound sand. And uh, again, there is some degree of evidence that uh, when the British came to the CIA and asked for their help in overthrowing Mossadegh, Dulles didn't bother to tell Eisenhower that the British had asked, he just sort of did it on his own hook. But I think that Eisenhower's attention would have been drawn more to a weaker Iran, one that is... A a possible uh, axis for Soviet aggression. And if Eisenhower is paying more attention to the problem, he's less likely to help out the British uh, in Operation Ajax and the overthrow of Mossadegh.
0: Right, because in the 50s, the Americans are starting to push back against the British colonial project and uh, wonder whether that is in anyone's interests in the alliance or just the the British
1: I mean it's more of a continuing that was the policy of uh, Roosevelt and Truman that Eisenhower basically is continuing uh, the the big break comes in Suez when Eisenhower hangs the British out to dry over the uh, their invasion of Egypt but uh, tensions are are high and Eisenhower is reflexively anti-colonial in the way that uh, Roosevelt and Truman were. Uh, it's really not until Kennedy that you start really going around and bolstering colonial powers uh, at various places. But Eisenhower is less interested in overthrowing Mossadegh. So the British try it themselves, and then the 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 die roll is: do they succeed or do they fail uh, ignominiously? If they succeed, then you have basically our history again, except the United States's exposure in the Iranian Revolution is less. Uh I don't think that you get a premature Iranian revolution. There is a degree to which you have to have, you know, two generations of incredibly brutal secret police oppression before uh, the people of Iran say anything is better than this. And you also have to allow Khomeini and the other second generation of of leaders to grow up with the degree of public support that they have that is genuinely earned because they're basically exiles and they're, you know, they're, they're not able to, or interested in, uh, have a transactional attitude to power that they're, that they have that sort of very, uh, almost totalitarian approach that in many cases, uh, Khomeini doesn't get until the sixties, uh, from, uh, his disciple Shariati, but the, uh, Khomeinism I believe is necessary for an, a real, the Iranian revolution that we recognize to have happened. And if, There'd been a, a religious rebellion against uh, Golem Shah in, in, let's say, uh, the 1960s. I think that it would have probably uh, been put down with great brutality by the army. And then everything continues as it is. You, you really need to see the, the complete uh, hollowing out of, of Iranian society that happens uh, later on um, as the first burst of westernizing gives way to just kleptocracy and brutality the way that the Shah's government did. And Golem Shah, obviously, who is in a weaker position than his older brother, what would have been, is even less likely to fight against that institutional drive uh, that the secret police and the other big powers in uh, Iranian society have. Uh, but if the British fail to overthrow Mossadegh, you get a divergence Uh, which in one version might indeed lead to a Sovietized Iran, uh, or it might lead to an Iranian Yugoslavia, or the Iranians might get lucky for once in modern history and wind up as a broadly based, somewhat westernizing power that still probably faces an Islamist revolution in the 70s. But because uh, the Mossadic government doesn't have the legacy of brutality that the Shah has, it's probably able uh, to to weather that storm. Uh, I I think Iran probably on the basis after a successful Masodic uh, administration, it stays chaotic and a lot of people get murdered in a lot of street fights. Uh, It's not a a, um, uh, necessarily a a calm or or particularly uh, prosperous country over and above its oil money, but it's not prey to one or another kind of totalitarianism the way that it became. The other possibility, of course, is that the British uh, succeed in overthrowing Mossadegh, like I said, and then you have a British client state in the Middle East that lasts until the British have to pull out of the Middle East anyway because the money has gone. And that happens in the late 60s when they pull out of Aden in uh, Yemen and they may attempt to make uh, Golem Shah their proxy in the area in the same way that Nixon attempted to make. Uh, Mohammed Reza Shah, their proxy. And the end, I think, is basically the same, that they're overthrown by uh, Khomeini.
0: So I'm hearing a number of different possibilities, but Ken, you have a time machine and are known to throw a spanner into the works. So which one uh, would you effectuate as the, uh, the the maximally positive timeline? I think first, keeping Eisenhower from greenlighting Operation
1: Ajax is, is the first priority, regardless of what happens To Mossadegh or to Iran, the United States is not instantly complicit in this particularly odious regime. I mean, it's not like we're not going to be complicit in plenty of other odious regimes, but not the Shah of Iran. So that then gives Khomeinism a more purely anti-Soviet approach. There will be some degree to which it's anti-American just because the Americans, the British, are the two Western powers. but. The focus of Iranian policy is not going to be anti-Americanism. If we don't overthrow Mossadegh, the focus is going to be hating on the British and hating on the Soviets, which is at least 50% of what you want anyway. But ideally, you keep Mossadegh in power and you attempt to build a, a civil society out of uh, labor unions out of the, the mercantile class and out of, um, the westernizing urban population that will be, uh, robust enough to withstand, uh, the winds of Khomeinism, which are coming, Mossadic or no Mossadic, um, because that's driven primarily by hatred of westernization, not by, you know, how mean the Shah was. It's just right. that, uh, how mean the Shah is is sort of a determinant and how rapid and successful the revolution is when it comes because literally everybody by that point knows someone who was you know disappeared or tortured to death or badly treated and the there is a degree of 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 non uh investment in the shah's legitimacy that would not be true of a democratic government or even a Yugoslavia-style dictatorship in Iran that was at least uh, more broadly based than the Shah's regime was.
0: So then, if you have a revolution where the animus is not specifically anti-American, but generally anti-Western and more uh, aimed at the British, you don't have an Iranian hostage crisis, you don't have the American embassy seized, does that mean that you have a second Carter term?
1: Um, Carter loses so dramatically that I don't think that alone does it. There's plenty of, uh, of cogent criticisms that were made of Jimmy Carter at the time, but you maybe you don't see the totalizing degree of the Reagan victory, that it's not the huge landslide that, that people were surprised at seeing. I mean, a second Carter term is the risk you have to take, Robin, and you, you, you try this, uh, stuff the way you want it to go. I think that Carter has, uh, so badly mismanaged the American economy and is so out of tune with the american national spirit in 1980 that the hostage crisis is more sort of the the the, you know the cherry on top than anything else um i i think that there is a degree to which jimmy carter is doomed regardless but certainly the hostage crisis not happening is uh is, is as good a shot as jimmy carter has in 1980 um but again you know i've still got a time machine robin i can prevent uh, history's greatest monster from getting a second term
0: but at any rate uh even a uh, as you suggest a less cataclysmic transfer of power from the democrats to the republicans i think changes uh, politics in the 80s quite a bit that it's the idea of we're on a completely different path is uh, perhaps uh, less in evidence uh, but of course the whole point of changing the timeline mostly is to uh, one hopes have uh, a less devastatingly awful situation uh, for the uh, the people in, in Iran and yeah. uh, perhaps a revolution that does not go catastrophically blood simple the way mm-hmm. it does in our timeline. And- ideally to avoid that revolution entirely, because if you can do that, then
1: you'd not only avoid that revolution, you also don't see the million and uh, a half people killed in the Iran Iraq war. If Saddam Hussein invades a uh, Mossadeghian Iran he is going to be facing a professional military rather than the sort of random waves of ideological draftees that uh Khomeini uh, throws up against him. The The modern Iranian army is, you know, it's, it's sort of the thing that grew out of the disaster of the Iran-Iraq war. But Mossadegh or Mossadegh's successors would not have had to start from scratch uh, the way that Khomeini did.
0: Right. Because it really this this size of the devastation of or disruption of the event of the iranian revolution and its impact on the whole region just can't be overstated yeah like, that the uh, there's a perception that the middle east is irrevocably broken and that anything you do will just make everything worse and the large part stems from the disruption of that one event which is continues to ripple forward uh today
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and and unlike say the french revolution uh, where you can say, "Well, at least there was, you know, elections and a constitution and other things that eventually came out of it. So far, the Iranian Revolution has produced just different misery, much like the Russian Revolution. And so it's it's one of those events that, you know, in your time in your time manual, if you can avoid it, try it.
0: Well, I think uh, we can all look forward to a glimpsing through our time scopes and uh, uh, at least imagining a uh, a better uh, life and world for, uh, for people in Iran. What we can uh, certainly anticipate, however, uh, with or without a time machine, is that uh, every week uh, there's another episode of this podcast. And so it's time for us to uh, sign off and we'll be back. Perhaps we might even uh, get topical again next week. Who knows what will happen? So what it's time for us to uh, wave goodbye, but we'll be back a mere seven days from now stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Hellgrain Press, Askphagum, Arc Dream, Dark Tower and pro-fantasy software. Music, as
1: always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin.
0: Keep this podcast unassassinated by joining such backer bodyguards as Jacob Borsma, Mike Merles, Rich Ranallo, Ryan Mannix, and Scott Jones. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash users slash
1: Subtweet your players with our latest design the players are the red herring
0: on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff